Hello and welcome to Journeying Through the Scriptures, a podcast where we journey through God's Word together. Today we continue our journey through the book of Mark. Alright everybody, welcome back to Mark chapter 12. We continue the last week of Jesus' life. Jesus begins the chapter by telling a parable that calls out all those who are about to test him. So we have this great group here. It says, he began to teach them in parables. Well, who is them? It's going to be the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees. And they're all about to come in individual groups, and they're about to test Jesus one by one, fail one by one. Because this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying Jesus is the true Messiah, whom the Scriptures speak of. So he begins in the first 12 verses with a parable very similar to one in Isaiah. It is that of a vineyard. And basically he sets up this parable. It's very clear. So, you know, we we talked about earlier, he spoke in parables so they might not understand. But here we, we get the picture that they very much do understand. And this is a very targeted parable. This this parable is like a dagger thrown at the Pharisees who were listening. So he says, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a, planted a vineyard and put up a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to the ten- tenants and went into another country. When the season came, that'd be the season of growth came, he went to, uh, sent a servant to the, ten- the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. And so they kind of go down this list of some they beat, some they mocked, some they killed. And so you, you get down to verse 6. It says, finally, he sent him uh, sent to them, saying, they will respect my son. In verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. And then he asked this very pointed question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? So just kind of funny as you look at this parable, it's sort of anti-logic in the sense that the tenants, what benefit like, would would they gain by killing the son, right? It's, it's, it's kind of a funny parable, in this, not funny in a hilarious sense, but funny in a sort of strange sense that he would send their son and they would think, if we kill this guy, we'll get the inheritance from the owner. And you could see the foolishness and the the arrogance of the tenants. And I think that is at play because those listening, the Pharisees, would be that. He, he's targeting them. He's saying, you're arrogant and you're foolish and you're going to kill me. And you're going to think, we'll still get the inheritance? I don't think so. And he asked the pointed question, what will the owner do? And he doesn't wait for an answer here. He, he kind of gives it to him. He goes, have you read? He, so he, in verse 9, he will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. This is a prediction about what's about to happen. And in verse 10, he kind of asks this question, have you not read this scripture? And he refers to himself as the stone that the, the builders rejected, but now it's the cornerstone, the foundation stone. And he's saying, that's me. You reject me, but I'm going to become the foundation of the building of God, the temple of God, the people of God. 
and this further infuriates them. And the results are in verse 12. And they were seeking to arrest him. They wanted him dead. They wanted him arrested. They wanted him gone because now they perceived that he told this parable against them. They perceived correctly. So they left him and they went away and they're angry. But you see, there's this interesting thing. They feared the people. And so I want to point that out because we don't need to read very quickly past that. They did not simply just get angry and leave. They didn't arrest Jesus because they feared the people. And that's going to become, and that already has been a theme, uh, chapter 11 as well as chapter 12. You see, Jesus does not fear the people. But you see the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they very much do. They fear the people. But one thing, uh, before we move on from this parable, we so often will read this and go, yeah, man, those Pharisees, they were just really bad. But we have to stop and we have to ask the question. This parable leaps into our time, not because we are Pharisees, but we are like the Pharisees. We can't find ourselves as the, one, the, the servants being beat up and thrown out. We have to find ourselves as the evil tenants. What do I mean by that? We have to ask the question, how have we denied and shamed the servants of God? How have we denied them? How have we shamed them? How have we turned them away? How have we rejected them? To make that even more clearly uh, clear, how have we rejected the prophets of the Old Testament? How have we rejected the word of God? How have we read it, but it not saturated our lives? And how have we, and how are we rejecting Jesus even right now? See, the Pharisees and the scribes are always conscious, are always aware of the crowd. Are we aware of the crowd? Are, do we fear the crowd more than we fear Jesus? See, that becomes the question. Jesus does not fear the crowd, yet we so often do. And here, watch this. This is the result. The fear of the crowd dictates and pervades their, that's the Pharisees' thought life. Do we allow the fear of people to invade our thought life and our heart life in relation to God? Do, are we afraid to act for God, do we reject Jesus because we're afraid of the crowd? We're afraid of what our friends might think, what society might think, and it pervades our thoughts, and it basically has us reject Jesus as a result. Notice Jesus is not concerned with the crowd's perception of him. He hasn't been the entire book. He doesn't care what the crowd thinks. The crowd follows him anyway, by the way. It's very interesting their receptiveness to his call to follow him. He doesn't care about that either. He, he offers it to the rich ruler who turns him down. He's not afraid of the crowd. He's not afraid of the rejection. And interestingly enough, people still follow him, but that very crowd will soon turn on him. He knows that, and yet he still teaches them. And now the tests begin. Angered as they are, the Pharisees come back. And so watch this. Now this is an interesting kind of thing. And verse 13, and they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians. Now remember, I think back all the way in chapter 1, the Pharisees and the Herodians sort of get together and talk about what can we do about this Jesus. He's causing us problems. Well, now the Pharisees and the Herodians are back and they're working together. But remember, these are two very strange groups to have working together because they do not get along. They do not play well together. They are 
really religious enemies, where the Herodians are more friendly to the the political establishment and the Pharisees more to the religious establishment. And so you kind of have a very odd duo coming together, and here's what they're going to try. They're going to try to trap him. So notice, their goal, their target, is to trap him in his talk. So they fear the crowd. They're not going to arrest Jesus outright, at least not yet. And they don't even uh, arrest Jesus outright when they do arrest him. They arrest him at night when no one's looking. So that fear of the crowd plays into this. Their hope is that they can turn the crowd against Jesus. Maybe if we can trap him in his talk, we can get the crowd on our side. That That's their goal. So this is how they do it. They say, teacher, we know that you are... You are true, and you care about, uh, you don't care about anyone's opinion. Well, those are, for one thing, very true statements, uh, and they're ironic. So Mark, really 11 through the end of the, the book, drips with irony. So you have them trying to sweet-talk Jesus. Oh, Jesus, you, we know that all, all things that you do and say are true, and, and you don't care what people think. And the, the funny thing is, is they're saying that. It's a true statement, right? They're, they're saying these things, but these things are absolutely true. He does know all things. He goes, we know that you are true, but he is true. And they're, they're saying it ironically because they mean it as kind of a buttering up to a trap. And what they're really doing is they're saying the truth. And you don't care about anyone's opinion. Of course he doesn't. He's God. He's the creator of all things. He does not care about anyone's opinion. He's going to do what's right. And he's going to do his will. But anyway, with that, all that irony, they butter him up. And they say, for you are not swayed by appearances. Another ironically true statement. But truly teach the way of God. Now see, again, they mean this as a way to butter him up. They don't believe this, but the irony is everything they said to butter him up is absolutely true of Jesus. He does teach the way of God. Everything he does is true. He's not afraid of anyone's opinion. He doesn't care about people's appearances. I mean, he touched a leper. He works with the poor. But watch this. I mean, he, he sees right through it. I mean, Jesus is not fooled by this at all. So here's the question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Which, by the way, has nothing to do with anything they said before. But there is their trick question. Should we pay them or should we not? But see, if he says, no, don't pay them, he, he can be arrested for speaking against the Roman Empire. If he says, yes, pay them, the crowd will turn against him, or at least that's their hope, because he's saying, give money to the Roman oppressors. But Jesus looks at him and he says, but knowing their hypocrisy, and Jesus, again, has that ability to look into the heart of man, and he sees their hypocrisy. And he said to them, why do you put me to the test? He said, bring me a Daenerys and, and let me look at it. And so I'm, I'm sure at this point they're going, oh, okay, interesting. And they brought him one, and he said to them, whose picture, whose image is on the inscription? And they said, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what is the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. God's. And they marveled at him. I think they marveled at him because this answer was perfect. He's saying, if it has Caesar's picture on it, give it to Caesar. But everything that has God's picture on it, give it to God. Well, here's the thing. and we, we often go, oh, that's a great answer. They marveled at him, and we, we often run past that story. But let's just camp there for another second and think about what he's saying. Give to Caesar's 
sorry, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Well, Caesar owns that money, and he's saying give, give that to Caesar. It has his picture on it. You live in the land that he's claimed, so so give him that money that he asked. Give give what the government asked. That this would be a good way to say pay your taxes. But it's the last phrase that I think we often don't understand or we don't fully think about. But he says, give to God's what is God's. Now, here's the brilliantness of that answer. What is God's? What belongs to God? What has his image on it? Answer, everything. That Daenerys, the land you're standing on, your very soul belongs to God. So give to God the things that are God's that means you must give everything to God because he owns everything so this is interesting in that we, we often look past this is a big thing this is again that use of the word all he, he's wanting he's give everything to God because everything belongs to God he's not saying that, that God does not own anything or he owns just some of the things give the religious things the gods and the worldly things to Caesar that's not what he's saying he's saying give to God the things that are God's and that is all things anything you see belongs to God give it to him give your soul to him give your heart to him give your life to him I think it's often bigger than we think now we move on to the next group, and it's the Sadducees. And again, here's the dripping irony. They're going to talk to Jesus about resurrection. Well, ironically, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, but they're going to ask him a question. So they, they show up, and they say they ask him the story about uh, a brother who dies, and in that time period, the, if a brother died and he did not produce an heir, the other brothers would marry his wife to try to produce children, and apparently, according to their story, because they're going on the side of ridiculous here to try to make Jesus sound ridiculous, uh, there's like seven brothers, and they all die, and they don't produce a child, and they said, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? She was married to seven. And so that's their question. But again, it's ironic, because they don't believe in the resurrection. So why are they asking about it? And so Jesus' answer to this is, is it not the reason? Is this not the reason you were wrong? Because they're asking about the resurrection. He says, because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, you don't know the scriptures. You don't know about the resurrection. You haven't read about it, but you don't know the power of God to do it either. He just he cuts through the question. He says that question's it's you know it, it's one of those things when people ask hypothetical ridiculous questions you don't often need to answer them because again they're aiming towards the hypothetical and ridiculous and that's what this is it's insane he's going to answer their question when he gets back to it but he wants to first point out you know the irony of you don't even believe in the resurrection you haven't read the scriptures you don't believe the scriptures you don't know them and nor do you know the power of God to do the things he says in the scriptures which is the resurrection of the dead and he goes, but here's his answer. They neither marry, say, for when they rise from the dead, in verse 25, notice, not if they rise, but when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they're like the angels. And as for the dead being raised, so he's going to get to the resurrection specifically here, so his answer, for one thing, is they're not going to be given to marriage. So we kind of get a, a glimpse of heaven here that in the resurrection, there's not going to necessarily be marriage. So, I mean, which makes sense because if you, you know, your spouse dies and you remarry, who are you married to in heaven? Jesus' answer is you're not married in heaven because it's not going to be like that. He's going to be like the angels in the sense that they're not married, they're not given to marriage. But now he's going to keep going 
uh, he's going to be talking about the resurrection. Verse 26, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read the book of Moses? Answer, if they've read it, they don't believe it. In the passage about the bush, now this is interesting, it goes to the burning bush. And he says, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's focusing on the word am there. He goes, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, and you're quite wrong. He's saying, no, 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 see, Mo- Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Moses, they're not dead. Because you don't die in, 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 in God. God brings them back. The power of God, they will live. And we know that when Jesus was transfigured, we saw Elijah and Moses speaking with Jesus alive again. That was just a prelude. Jesus has... Now, Jesus will be the first one resurrected. Now, a little nuance on that. Yes, he has raised people from the dead, but those people he raised from the dead do die Do die again. So he, he's, resurrection is, die, is re, being raised from the dead to never die again. Jesus will be the first one resurrected, but he's saying it's for everyone. Everyone will live again. And so another comes up, and this time it's one of the scribes. And he heard the he heard the the dispute between the Sadducees and Jesus. And and he, seeing that Jesus answered well, he asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? No, I, I think the scribe isn't trying to trick Jesus. I think he's generally curious of how Jesus is going to answer this question. He he hears some of these responses, and he's thinking, well, that's quite a clever response. I'm, I'm curious. You know, may, maybe could you answer this question? He kind of throws it out there. And Jesus answered, the most important is hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. He answers with the Shema, which is something every Israeli would have known, every every good Jew at that time would have known the Shema. And he says it, and notice the repetition in the Shema of the word all. All to God, all yourself, the whole self, not part of it. you got to give all of it. Give to God the things that are God's. All. And the scribe said to him, You're right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, and with all your strength, to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more... Sorry, I might, I might have read a little past that, but he says, you're right, teacher. He goes, but he does say that. And he says, is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And interestingly enough, he's right. That giving of yourself, the total self to God, is more than all the burnt sacrifices. Because here's the thing, loving your neighbor, giving everything that you are to God, is more than all the burnt sacrifices. Why? Because those things come from the heart. They come from a redeemed heart. It's a reflection of a redeemed heart. Sacrifices were only a shadow of Jesus' work on, a cro- on the cross. They were never meant to be the one and all to get your sins gone. It was a shadow of the sacrifice Jesus is about to do in just a couple chapters. All the burnt sacrifices and in sacrifices in general, in all the Old Testament imagery, leads to Jesus. And I think the scribe accidentally falls on this. I don't know if he fully grasps it because Jesus says you're close to the kingdom of God. You're not there yet, but you're close. Because he gets the fact that loving 
one's neighbor as oneself and giving all of oneself to God is more important than the sacrifices because see and we see that all the way back in Isaiah by the way Isaiah 115 has uh, God speaking to Isaiah and he says what are your burnt offerings to me I'm tired of it who asked you to do these things you're trampling my courts because they're bringing these sacrifices but their heart is far from God they're just doing it at a you know rote ritual ritualistic uh, religious religion Sorry, there's a lot of R's and funny words. Uh, but this is this, God does not want you to go through the motions. So if we put this in our, in our time, that, that's how I would see that. This, God doesn't want the religious motions. He doesn't want you just to raise your hand and worship because that's what you're supposed to do or to, to put money in the offering plate because that's what you've seen done every Sunday since you've been at church. You know, bow your head when you pray and, and, you know, just think of something else, but you're bowing your head and you're pretending to pray. You know, all these things, these things that sometimes we find ourselves doing, you know, in the, the religious actions, but he's, he's saying, those are not what I'm looking for. What I'm looking for is the giving of the total self and the loving the neighbor as yourself, which kind of go hand in hand. If you've given everything to God, you will love your neighbor truly. And so Jesus saw that he answered wisely. So, I mean, this is a wise answer. I think Jesus is not being ironic there. I think he's saying, you you did. This is a wise answer. This is a good answer to, the, to, to what I said. And he says, you're not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one asked him any more questions. I think they're, we're done. Uh, but now Jesus goes on the offensive. So after, you know, people coming to him to try to, trap him he's going to go on the offensive and he's going to teach and it says and jesus taught in the temple and he said how can the scribes say that christ is the son of david david himself says the lord said to my lord sit at the right hand and i'll put your enemies under your feet and in verse 37 he says david calls him lord so how was he his son so what he's doing he's setting up this thing here so he's teaching and he said that he's actually connecting this to going I'm the son of David, but yet I'm greater than David. I was the one that David was calling Lord because he's saying indirectly, I'm God in human flesh. And then he's going to go on to the next verse 38 through 39, or sorry, 38 through 40, and he's going to say, but beware of those who give the outward appearance of religiosity or spirituality, but inside they're fake. He's going to refer here to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they walk around with long robes, which is an indication of holiness. And like greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats at the synagogue, and the places of honor at feast, who in these very same people devour widows' houses for a pretense. They also make long prayers. So they, they again, they're going through the motions, but they their heart, their actions are bad. They're not loving neighbor. They're not giving them total, their total selves to God. And he says, here's the response. They will receive a greater condemnation. They will be judged on this, and it will not be good. Well, so what does it look like to not be that way? I think verse 41 through the end of the chapter has the answer as we get ready to close here. 
He says, And he sat down opposite of the treasury and watched people putting money into the offering boxes. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in a, two small copper coins, which basically make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all those contributing the offering box and I'm sure they're confused like I, I, Jesus I'm pretty sure she just threw in two little coins these guys are like dumping in coins but Jesus answers that by going for they all contributed out of their abundance but she out of her poverty has put everything or all she had and all she had to live on so as we kind of close today I want to I want you to see how some of those themes are kind of wrapping up and coming back. Is here you you have what does it look like to not go through the motions religiously? It looks like giving all that you have. How do you give all to God? How do you give the things? How do you give God the things that are God's? It's giving everything to Him. She gives the thing. This woman demonstrates Jesus' answer to the, the Pharisees and Herodians' questions question which is give the caesar things that are caesar but give to god the things that are god and she does she gives everything she has because everything is god and notice the faith behind that in contrast to those giving out of what they had they're giving out of their abundance they're giving their leftovers the widow gives all that she has she's giving her giving everything is a display of outward faith that God will supply her very needs because she has nothing left now that she's given that to God. It is a model of what the rich ruler back in chapter 10 was not. He had great stuff, great wealth, and Jesus said, give it to the poor and follow me. Display that faith. Because he said, you'll, you'll have a reward in heaven. Remember chapter 10, and he went away sad because he had a lot of things. But this woman who has nothing gives what she does have. She gives everything. It, it wasn't much, but it was all she had. And the reason is because she had great faith that there's a treasure waiting for her. That faith in God is more than the sum of her earthly belongings. And giving it to God is an outward show of, of true faith. And for us, too, giving, sacrificial giving is always a good marker of faith. We, we always want to give out of, our, out of our abundance. We're afraid to give more. But do you trust God if he calls you to do that? Do, do you trust God to give all of your time to help someone? Because sometimes ministry is hard and it's dirty work and it's dealing with people who aren't good and that are broken and, and, you know, we, we sometimes will give out our abundance, like, oh, i got some spare time here, I can help them out. Uh, but what if he calls you to give up the time that you treasure to help somebody? Would you do that? Would you be willing to give all the things, all the things to God, our gods, your time, your money, your media consumption, your social media consumption? the words you use, how you use them, who you use them to, would you be willing to give all those things to God and truly put your faith in Him? 
well, we'll jump back into it next week with chapter 13. Thank you for journeying through the scripture.